Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, July 22nd. In today's news, it looks like President Trump is about to get rolled again in budget negotiations with Nancy Pelosi. Bob Mueller is unlikely to give Republicans or Democrats what they want when he testifies on Wednesday. And hundreds of Islamic State militants are slipping back into Iraq. Their fight isn't over. But first, the big idea. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. once called church services one of the most segregated hours in America because whites and blacks worship at different churches. Decades later, King's quote still holds true. Trump's rally in Greenville, North Carolina last week and the send her back chance that it inspired divided much of the country, and the city where he delivered that message was no exception. Greg Jaffe and Cleve Woodson went down to attend services and talk with pastors on Sunday. They report back that one of the biggest events to hit the city in decades was barely mentioned in at least two white churches where pastors were reluctant to blend politics and faith. Many of the congregants at the Unity Free Will Baptist Church, for example, said the accusations of racism over the president's remarks are unfair to him and that Trump's not racist. In black churches, the political, the spiritual, and the moral were unavoidably intermixed. The Reverend Stephen Howard knew Trump's speech was going to be unsettling for the city and his almost entirely black church the moment he saw people lined up at 4 a.m. on Wednesday to get into the arena. These were his congregants' neighbors and co-workers. Soon they'd be cheering for a president whom Howard and many of his flock at Cornerstone Missionary Baptist Church consider a racist. He knew he'd have to say something. Howard, who's 51, came to the United States in the 1980s from Liberia, and he's experienced the country as both a black man and an immigrant with an accent. As a pastor at churches throughout the Southeast, he said he's learned that being asked, where are you from, is not always a sign of harmless curiosity. Just before Howard stepped up to the pulpit on Sunday, Trump fired off a new round of tweets accusing the four liberal congresswomen known as the Squad, who he's been attacking, of not loving America and moreover, saying they are incapable of loving America. Trump demanded that these young women apologize to him for the horrible and hateful things they've said. There was an hour of singing at the church, a pause for tithing, and then Howard's sermon, which began with the advice from Psalm 37, not to fret of those who are evil. Howard reminded his congregants that God had delivered African Americans from darker periods in this nation's history. That salvation, he said, was even more reason to stand with Ilhan Omar and the three other congresswomen amid Trump's attacks. The worshipers called out amens and preach. He promised that if they were steadfast in their faith, their deliverance from evil and sin would be heavenly. And in a nod to the events of the previous week, he noted it could also be earthly. November 2020 ain't that far away, he said, adding, quote, the wicked shall soon be cut off. Now, across town, Brad Smith, the pastor of the 192-year-old predominantly white Baptist church, got his first inkling that something had gone wrong when his wife returned home from the speech. She was there watching Trump as an employee of East Carolina University, where the rally was held, and she was shaken by the anger she saw in the auditorium. The chants at the rally were really disturbing and probably racist, the pastor said, 
but they don't represent the Greenville that he knows. He's upset that Trump chose his city to hold such a divisive rally, and he wonders how the country became so divided. Was it because a black person won the presidency, he wondered? Maybe the country wasn't ready for it. Smith spent two days thinking about whether he should scrap his prepared sermon on Noah and the flood in favor of a speech focused more on the rally and its aftermath. When Sunday came, he took the pulpit and told the story of God's disappointment, the flood, and the one good man he had chosen to save to start anew. The only mention that he made of Trump's rally was a fleeting one. When those who protest to open the border and those who chant go back home can't seem to be on the same page, he explained, it is only the love and grace and mercy found in the very body of Christ that can mend divisions. That was the message of Noah's story. To love God is to love all of us, he said, concluding, quote, it is hard to do, but it is beautiful. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that ought to be on your radar this Monday morning. Number one, White House and congressional negotiators rushing to hammer out the final details of a sweeping budget and debt deal are unlikely to include many, if any, actual spending cuts, even as the debt limit is lifted for two years. The agreement marks a major retreat for White House officials who had demanded major spending cuts in exchange for any new budget deal. But the process remained in limbo at the 11th hour while negotiators awaited final approval late Sunday night from Trump himself. The pending deal would seek to extend the debt ceiling and set new spending levels for two years, ratcheting back the budget brinkmanship that led to the record-long government shutdown earlier this year. In practical terms, the budget agreement would increase spending by tens of billions of dollars in the next two years. As Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told the president in a recent phone call, no one has ever lost re-election for spending too much money. As some White House officials backed away from their demands for spending cuts, their focus shifted to trying to block an attempt by House Democrats to restrict funding for the border wall. As part of the deal to raise military and spending levels for two years, White House officials were attempting to convince Nancy Pelosi to back off on certain policies Democrats hope to include in future must-pass spending bills. One point of contention involved the administration's legal authority to transfer money between budget accounts to finance construction of the wall. Democrats have fought to limit or eliminate the White House's ability to transfer money, but White House officials have pushed hard to retain that flexibility. The exact resolution of that dispute is uncertain, and the future of the deal could hinge on it. If the agreement is finalized and gets Trump's approval, Pelosi will have less than a week to muscle it through the House before the chamber adjourns for a six-week summer recess on Friday. Number two, on Wednesday, when he delivers long-awaited testimony about his investigation, Democrats are hoping to coax from former special counsel Bob Mueller the kind of dramatic moment that could galvanize public opinion against this president. Republicans, meanwhile, are eager to elicit testimony that shows the investigation was biased from its inception. Those who know Mueller best are skeptical, to put it mildly, that he will meet either side's expectations. Mueller is set to appear before the House Judiciary Committee for three hours, a hearing that aims to focus on the question of whether the president obstructed justice. Mueller will also spend two hours before the House Intelligence Committee answering questions about Russia's election interference. The back-to-back -back hearings will probably be the last public word from the special prosecutor, whose two-year tenure was marked by long silences and fevered speculation about his work. A central question for Mueller will be whether he as a prosecutor would have filed charges against Trump were he not the president. 
Mueller will also face questions about his interactions with Attorney General Bill Barr. Democrats have accused Barr of mischaracterizing Mueller's findings in the weeks before the report's public release, a political move that blunted its impact. At one point, Mueller wrote to Barr complaining that the Attorney General's statements had created confusion among the public about his findings. But Barr's tried to downplay that disagreement, calling Mueller's letter, quote, a bit snippy. Mueller has appeared before Congress 88 times, going back to 1990. 88 times. That's according to the Senate historian. That's among the most of any official ever in U.S. history. Number three. Islamic State militants who escaped the defeat of their self-declared caliphate in Syria earlier this year have been slipping across the border into Iraq, bolstering a low-level insurgency that the group is now waging across the central and northern part of the country. About a thousand fighters have crossed into Iraq over the past eight months, most of them in the aftermath of the caliphate's collapse in March. These fighters, mostly Iraqis who followed the Islamic State into Syria, are returning home to join militant cells that have been digging into rugged rural areas sustained by intimate knowledge of the terrain, including concealed tunnels and other hiding places. The militants move under the cover of darkness to carry out sniper attacks and rudimentary roadside bombings several times a week now. Their attacks, which occur outside major cities, are often opportunistic, and primarily they target community leaders and security forces involved in efforts to root them out. An explosion earlier this month in the northern city of Kirkuk killed two motorcyclists. A separate attack in Diyala in eastern Iraq targeted militiamen assigned with hunting down the militants. Islamic State media has published grainy videos showing the assassination of paramilitary fighters and local notables. Even truffle hunters have been kidnapped, apparently after roaming too close to the militants' desert hideouts. Iraqi security forces announced last week the start of a new military campaign to secure and clear the desert along the country's 370-mile border with Syria. But on the ground, the security challenges are daunting. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, July 22nd. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you like or don't like about The Daily 202 podcast. Please take our survey and be entered into our sweepstakes for $500 Amazon gift cards. The survey is at washingtonpost.com slash 202 survey. Thanks so much. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Lillian Cunningham, host of the Washington Post's presidential and constitutional podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. Moonrise reexamines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction to tell a new story about space. It's one that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.